Hey, what up? Hello, everybody. Alex Kapitko here, centered from Reality Podcast. I'm recording this Thursday evening, so second podcast of the day. It is Thursday, January 11th, but by the time you hear it, this might be Friday morning because you've probably had enough of me today, obviously, with the morning podcast on Taylor Swift conspiracies and Trump's immunity claims. Well, today I want to kind of do somewhat of a deep dive into South Africa Taking the Israel genocide case to the United Nations, Israel has a chance to respond on Friday, so tomorrow. I also want to talk about how dire, tragic, and horrific the situation is getting in Gaza, and why I would argue, A, the Netanyahu government is in the driver's seat here and needs to change its actions, and B, that I think we need to force Israel to let some of its private sectors start getting food and water and supplies to Gazans. Because it is just really hard to argue this isn't a genocide when you are seeing pretty much all of the worst humanitarian criteria from famines to hunger to violence. You are seeing widespread disease, etc. And now, like, I think, it's, I think I saw the number like 1% of the Gazan population at least is now dead. So we'll talk about that. First, I just had to say, gosh, (laughs) I think I work in a bubble and, you know, just between the Nordic community and my friends at the other job and just the people I try to bring in my life, I think I, I think I live in a bubble because I just feel like people are on edge and things are just kind of crazy. And the reason I say this, I just feel like people aren't nice to each other anymore and don't try to lead by example anymore. And of course, this is a very generalized, subjective statement, but just on my drive home, there's a guy going like 45 in the fast lane. No, maybe even slower. So, you know, I, I, I didn't flash him, didn't do anything like that, but I decided just to go around him in the right lane. And as soon as I'm next to him, he just revs the engine and starts going like 75. So then I'm like, great, well, I guess I'm going to have to go behind him. So I go back in the left lane and sit behind him, and he goes back to 30 like he just doesn't want me to go around him. So then we come up a bunch of bun- uh, um, a bu- um, we come up on a bunch of trucks, and so he just drives parallel to the trucks for the next 10 miles, just making sure I can't go any faster than him. And this is after, uh, this happened a few days ago, this is after I had kind of a bad day, and I just wanted to get home and eat and relax. And it was just like this guy was having such a bad day that he wanted to reflect that on me as well. And that just really bugged me. Then that same day, by the time I get get home, I'm like, I don't feel like cooking. So I went to go get some food. And there's a family in there. And the dad's F-bombing his kids, screaming at him. They're all arguing. Just kind of an unpleasant experience out. And didn't look like any of them were having fun. They were all arguing. And then I look out the door and there's someone sprinting across the parking lot. And then I look over and there's like three police officers trying to go after him. And I'm just going, oh, my gosh. It just just that whole post-work afternoon and everything I saw, I'm just like, God, I must I want to go back to my bubble. (laughs) But I don't know. It just seems like it just seems like things are kind of eroding, like, like just our decency, is, is eroding. Like our decency to one another and how we treat people is just different. So I don't even know where I was going with that. I kind of just wanted to get that off my chest and talk about it for a moment. So yeah, there we go. But anyways, let's start with South Africa. So basically today, 
the UN's International Court of Justice started to hear a case that South Africa put forward. And South Africa is accusing Israel of committing genocide in the Gaza Strip. Now, before I get into all the details, I did a podcast, geez, now time flies, probably like two months ago at this point, and I talked about how I don't yet think there is a case of genocide. I think you can argue that there's been indiscriminate attacks, there's a humanitarian crisis, that Israel's probably um, violated or committed war crimes, I guess would be the proper way to say it. I said all of that is true. But right now, proving the intention, the intent of this is difficult. And my opinion has changed a little bit. And, and this is just because of the rhetorics of some of these ultra-fringe, ultra-conservative people that are in Netanyahu's coalition. You know, the Itamar Ben-Gavirs, who is the protege of an extremist rabbi who's very anti-Arab. You also have uh, Bezalel Smotrich, who calls human rights groups an existential threat to Israel's existence. And some of these individuals I mentioned are the ones talking about force-removing Gazans. They haven't done it, but they, they would like to do it. And so the rhetoric is extreme, and these are people in positions of power. And so I am shifting a little bit on that because you can't just deny what your eyes are seeing and what we're seeing on the ground. Now, that being said, Dean Phillips from Minnesota, who is, I guess, still running against Joe Biden to be president. I actually kind of agree with his take. He got in a pretty heated debate on breaking points with Crystal Ball, you know, kind of the isolationist populist podcast that I listen to and I want to rip my hair out. And he was she he was I mean, he is Jewish. But I think his stance was pretty reasonable. He was basically just like, I support Israel's existence. I want Israel to be there. He said also Hamas is genocidal because they literally went out on October 7th and wanted to kill Jews. Like they wanted to kill a specific group. And I think that's accurate. But then Crystal Ball pushes him and says, well, can you also then say that Israel is committing genocide on Gazans? And Dean Phillips says, that he doesn't like what he's seeing. He thinks the Netanyahu government needs to stop the bombings and they need to get aid in there. And they need, he doesn't go as far as a ceasefire, but he says things need to change in there and he does not support Israel's response. But then at the same time, he says something I also agree with. He said the Netanyahu government needs to also go in front of this UN International Court of Justice or the UN Human Rights Council and be heard. And if it comes out that they find it was genocide, then it's genocide. And of course, Crystal didn't like that, blah, blah, blah. But I think that's true. You can throw around the word genocide, but it needs to be held in front of a court. So I guess that gets us to what happened today and will be going on over the next week or so. It is South Africa accusing Israel of genocide, and it is going to be heard in an international court. In a sense, I think this is actually somewhat good. Now, you guys will see in a little bit, I'm going to argue that I don't agree with South Africa's intentions on here. I think they've always had a lot of sympathy for Hamas and Arafat and the cause. And also, it is good for Ramaphosa, who is suffering elections in Africa, in South Africa, and the economy's bad. So I think there's a lot of other interests here, and I think there's a lot of contradictions here. But at the same time, let's bring this in front of a court. Let's hear it. So basically... South Africa is arguing that the killing of civilians, about 23 to 30,000, depending on the numbers, which either way is insane. And this is mainly civilians, a lot of children, right? And, there's, and so South Africa is alleging that the killing of civilians in Gaza, along with the forced evacuations and isolation, 
qualified as a genocide. Now, the interesting thing here is that it's actually South Africa and Israel who both signed the Genocide Convention of 1948. And part of this 1948 convention is that it pushes countries to prevent and punish genocide. And it defines it in quotes as acts committed with the intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnic, racial, or religious group. And basically, South Africa has filed, I think it's 84, 80, yeah, 84 pages. And, it, and according to The Economist, it argues that Israel, in, quote, in quotes here, is inflicting such appalling conditions of life on Gazans that they are calculated to bring about their physical destruction. Interesting. And, of course, I should note Israel is going to be able to respond, of course, which is good as well. I think both, I think this is just good. We need a hearing here. And, of course, I, I was watching the BBC this morning when I was having my tea, and they were they had an Israeli official on. I forget exactly what he was. I was multitasking. But he said something to the effect of South Africa is now the political puppet of Iran, and all this will do if it goes to the UN Human Rights Council, so even further down the line, is that it will just ruin Israel's credibility and the world will turn on it. And they also said that we're not killing civilians, we're waging a war against Hamas, we're not destroying the people who live there. And I guess you can say that, and I don't know if Israel really wins no matter what they do here, but I don't know if Israel, I mean, not Israel, if South Africa is a puppet of the Iranian government. I'll get into later why it's always had historical ties to the Palestinian cause and has also not been supportive of Israel. It's much deeper than that. And I guess the case is just getting harder for Israel to make that they're just going after Hamas. I will say that. So anyways, Israel is taking this very seriously. And it makes sense why they would. Because let's say this goes in front of the UN Council here and they find that Israel's committing genocide. Of course, now the U.S. could veto it, which it's done in the past. But let's just say, for example, the, the final decision is genocide and they call this a genocide. All of Israel's support from the West dries up. And you probably even see the United States struggle to get aid to Israel. So Israel cannot have this be favorable towards the South African argument and favorable towards the Hamas argument that this is genocide. So I was reading a good PBS article and it was talking about how Israel is sending a very strong legal team to defend the operation. And this is kind of a big deal in a sense because we also have to remember that historically Israel has actually boycotted tribunals, UN investigations, always calling them unfair and biased. Sometimes I would actually agree that they are unfair and biased towards Israel, but involving settlements in the West Bank, the UN has kept calling these illegal. I think they are illegal just based on private property laws and just my view of private property and expansionism. And Israel boycotts it when they're calling their settlements illegal, for example. But now they sure are not boycotting it. They're taking this one pretty seriously, and it makes sense. And it's unclear what happens after the decision. Like, is, his, is, is Israel going to halt operations or just ignore the decision? Of course, it could face UN sanctions. It could also face a lot of global condemnation, especially in the global south, for example. But as I said, the U.S. could also block this by a veto. And the U.S. has done this. And so that's what's going to be interesting to see. And now, Israel also, I was reading in that PBS article, Israel is saying that you can't call this whole conflict with Hamas that's gone back for quite some time, for decades, 
you can't call this genocide because they cite examples of kind of the back and forth nature of this conflict. And South Africa is doing something interesting. They are basically narrowly confining this accusation of genocide to the post-October 7th war that's happening between Israel and Hamas. So they're not talking about previous issues. They are not taking this case as a broad example of what Israel's been doing to Palestinians, whether you agree with it or not, for the last decades. They're focusing specifically on right now. And unfortunately for Israel, they probably have a better case based on what's going on right now. So we're going to have to watch this. By the time you're listening, the hearings might have already started, so some of this could be mood. (laughs) But What I will also say is that we have to remember that, I mean, I've seen a lot of people going, oh my God, this is actually happening. They're going to be hearing whether this is genocide. And we do have to remember, though, that the world courts have actually never made a judgment regarding a country responsible for genocide or a country committing a genocide. What I mean is that even though these courts have seen the hearings before, it's actually pretty hard sometimes to actually prove genocide. And PBS writes here, The closest it came was in 2007 when it ruled that Serbia, in quotes, violated the obligation to prevent genocide. And that's just to prevent genocide, not even saying that the Milosevic government actually did it. And so this was in July 1995. So literally 12 years later, they finally came to a decision that they violated the obligation to prevent genocide, but never actually said they did genocide. So it gets very complicated. And, of course, we have to remember that this is after the July 1995 massacre that was done by Bosnian Serb forces of more than 8,000 Muslim men and boys in Srebrenica, which is a Bosnian enclave. And horrific events. I mean, the whole Balkan scenario, horrific. But I guess generally my point is that it's going to be really hard to actually prove genocide and It doesn't really matter what we want to call it at the end of the day. I know genocide has legal implications and all of that, especially involving what sanctions and repercussions can happen to Israel going forward. But no matter what we call it, what I do know is that there are forces inside of Netanyahu's government that would be very fine with getting rid of the Palestinian people from that land and expanding Israel. And I also know that Hamas despises Israelis, and October 7th was meant to stir the pot. So it's all just a fucking depressing nightmare. And either way, Israel needs to... I'm becoming more and more for some form of a ceasefire. Now, moving on, I want to talk about South Africa's side for a minute, and I just want to start with a caveat here. This is not me doing a whataboutism to say, see... This, this accusation of genocide doesn't matter because South Africa is hypocritical. I just want to explain why South Africa has been kind of the lead, has, has been kind of the lead force here on condemning Israel and supporting Hamas as well as Palestine. So I, I want to read this economist passage from their section on South Africa out today because I think it sums up a lot of things quite well here. It writes here in quotes, hypocrisy has it would seem, no limits when it comes to South Africa's foreign policy. Exactly a week before the country was due to accuse Israel of genocide before the International Court of Justice on January 11th, President Cyril Ramaphosa played host to Mohammed Hamdan Dagalo, a Sudanese warlord whose Janjaweed militia and its successor are accused of genocide and war crimes in Darfur. The article continues later on. Adding to the insult, Mr. Dagalo, also known as Hemedi, 
Hemeti, sorry, um, later visited the Genocide Museum in Kigali, Rwanda. And, and let me remind you guys that I'm pretty sure the Janjaweed militia that committed the war crimes in Darfur, another thing that was never totally called a genocide, even though it was. So you have Ramaphosa meeting with a Sudanese warlord who is right now leading the rapid response forces, which is the, the new version of the Janjaweed militia. And they are committing famine, starvation, genocide in Sudan right now. So it is just kind of ironic that the South Africans are calling Israel genocidal while also meeting with arguably worse people that are also being propped up by the Wagner group and the Russian government. So, I mean, this all goes full circle. But also... <laughs> On December 5th, South Africa had the 10-year anniversary of Nelson Mandela's death. I like Nelson Mandela a lot. Probably don't agree with all of his politics, but I understand, obviously, the importance of him. And so he's a symbol of, you know, reconciliation and peace. And at this event, there was a Hamas delegation led by Bassem Naim, who is a senior official, and he was seen photographed next to Mandela's grandson, Mandla. And they had a march through the streets of Pretoria, which is the capital of South Africa. And I guess the problem here is that South Africa is only a handful of countries that actually has diplomatic relations with Hamas. And there's really some interesting literature on this. South Africa is quite good friends, is quite supportive of Russia and Hamas slash the Palestinian cause. And it's, a, it's really because... Marxist, Marxism forces from Russia were very anti-apartheid, right? Apartheid was um, a, an almost racial slave-based society that was hyper-capitalist. And Marxism was obviously about getting rid of class, fighting capitalism, and their form of equality. Of course, it didn't end that way. I would argue the Soviet Union ended up being fascist. But basically, the, Marx, the Marxists in South Africa identified with the Soviet Union, and they also identified with people like um, Nassar Arafat, the leader of the, dead now, but the leader of the Palestinians, and there's, I guess you could call it uprising against Israel. So in a, in a very general sense, South Africa doesn't care if Hamas is called a terror group because the African National Congress was also called a terrorist organization when, and this is the group Nelson Mandela was part of, and now, now the leading government of South Africa. But the, the African National Congress, the ANC, was called a terrorist organization during apartheid Africa. So the ANC right now sees the Palestinian plight and sees echoes of its own long fight for freedom in it. And I think we also need to remember that the ANC has a lot of antipathy towards Israel because during apartheid or white rule, the Jewish state did supply weapons and technology to South Africa and this is when South Africa was under a, a, a UN arms embargo. And so this is at the time when Nelson Mandela and others saw the Palestinian cause against Israel as being somewhat of their cause against the South African apartheid government. And so it is something that we just have to remember when we see this breakdown in relationships. And basically South Africa after October 7th, and this is I think deplorable, really struggled to say Hamas committed any atrocities. Eventually the government did, but then obviously right away condemns everything Israel does. And I think even though 
You can look at history and look at the deteriorating relationship between Israel and South Africa. I think you also have to look internally. When, as I talk about all the time, when domestic policy is struggling, when a, when a party or an administration is struggling, war can always help. And The Economist writes here, before Hamas's attack, the um, Ramaphosa's approval rating was at an all-time low of 40.7%, according to a survey of registered voters by the Social Research Foundation. Voters were fed up, the article talks, because the economy is stalling, the blackouts keep on rolling, and in quotes, there has been visible action against, or sorry, there's been little visible action against corruption. And so basically... They think that support for the ANC is expected to dip below 50% for the first time in a national election. So the war in Gaza, perfect time to get behind a cause that a lot of the country supports, stand up against Israel, which there's a lot of antipathy towards, especially if you're a black South African, and also to rally against this. And it can really help unify the country. And um, there's a guy, Ronak Galpaldas, a director of the South African risk analysis firm Signal Risk. And he said, in quotes, the ANC is trying to elevate this into an election issue to potentially try and distract from some of the core economic issues. And there's actually a new poll that came out back in November, and it already shows a four percentage increase in Ramaphosa's approval rate. So imagine now after now South Africa's basically fighting Israel and calling it a genocidal state going to be very interesting to see. Anyways, I want to actually get to Gaza. I actually want to kind of argue that I think the Israeli government needs to open up private Israeli companies that produce goods into Gaza, which actually before October 7th was what they did, because just UN and other human rights groups giving aid is not going to solve this problem. So I want to talk about that at the end. But let's just look at some of the recent numbers. About 85% of Gaza's population has now been displaced. According to The Economist and the UN's World Health Organization, 1.4 are shelter, sorry, 1.4 million are sheltering in schools and other facilities. Conditions are just horrendous from everything I've seen. Like there's one example in the southern city of Khan Yunis, where, by the way, they were all told to go from the north. You have a warehouse in Khan Yunis that has 30,000 people in it with like 10,000 camping outside. And the UN's, you know, WHO says there is only one shower for every 4,500 people in Gaza. Despicable. And one toilet for every, two, for every 220 people. And they wonder why diseases are spreading rampantly. Also, the UN says about two-thirds of Gaza's hospitals are closed. Not great when you also have people getting obliterated and injured all the time. And there are still 13 working, but they're obviously overflowing. And you have blood-slicked floors where people are getting treated. So just imagine the communicable diseases that are being spread as well through all of this. And I was looking through the UN's five-step integrated food security phase classification scale. God, that really flows off the tongue. Let me say that again. The five-step integrated food security phase classification scale. And it measures hunger. And basically it goes from phase one where people are fine. And at phase five, they are starving to death, which according to their definition means regularly skipping meals and usually going at least 24 hours without food. And this is troubling. Arif Hussein, who is the chief economist at the World Food Program, 
He says 706,000 people around the world are at the worst level, so phase five. Here's the fucking crazy thing. Four out of five of those people, so 577,000, are in Gaza. 80% of all the world's people at phase five of hunger are in Gaza. He says in quotes, the scale, severity, and speed make this crisis unprecedented. I think that's definitely definitely one way to put it. And the problem here is that this is not some global event, some sort of chaotic situation, climate change, world war, because as we know, Israel about the size of New Jersey, Gaza much smaller, just across the border, there's Western level systems of health and there's no food shortages. And it seems to me that it's becoming more and more clear that these conditions are not completely inevitable. And what I mean is that, of course, Israel has the right to respond. Of course, Israel should respond after October 7th. But blocking aid, forcing all of it to go through the Rafah crossing in Egypt, and Egypt is also a bad actor, by the way. But Israel, I think, has made this worse and... This looks to me more like the result of political decisions made by the Israeli government and not just the product of what we're seeing happen. And Israel is in a pretty troubling and, well, just complicated situation right now because it's not letting in what it calls dual-use items because it's afraid that Hamas could use them for weapons. And the thing is, is that not every Gazan is Hamas. But if they keep up this effort, then most Gazans or all Gazans are going to support Hamas because they are so desperate against Israel. But when I talk about this dual-use items thing, Israel has this ever-changing, complicated list of items that are not allowed to enter Gaza because even if they have humanitarian reasons, they could also be used by Hamas for military purposes. So like, for example, Gaza is pretty much out of fresh water. Not pretty much, like almost completely. And it would be a lot easier to help put spare parts in desalination plants, which are completely run down and broken at this point and out of operations. But the problem is, is that there are spare parts for desalination plants that are on this dual-use items list because parts could be used for Hamas weapons. So now they have to truck in bottled water through like two different border openings that are highly monitored and take forever. There's also reports of Egyptian aid groups, the Red Crescent, I think is what it's called, stealing the good stuff and giving expired products to the Gazans. So it'd be easier just to set up desalination plants again, but you can't because there's parts that could be used for bombs or whatever. And also there's dozens of generators that were donated by Kuwait along with solar powers and solar powered lights which would also be good, especially because things are getting cold. People just can't get access to electricity and all of that jazz. It'd be great for hospitals. But also there's parts in those that could be used as weapons. So it's becoming this issue where I understand Israel wants to take out Hamas, but they are not even letting any aid in that could actually be useful in helping build some form of infrastructure for people because they think Hamas could use it. And of course, Hamas probably does want to use it and will use it in examples. But It's just kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't on both sides here. And getting back to what I was saying earlier about how this is clearly a political decision to do this to the Gazans, 
and not just an effect of a war. I want to get into kind of the paradox of what's happening now and how I think Israel does need to respond. Of course, I think all of this rests on Netanyahu going bye-bye, like no longer leading. And I really want Netanyahu to go, but that's obviously not up to me. That's up to the people. Anyways, The Economist writes here in quotes, Before the war, Gaza was something of a paradox. It was one of the most aid-dependent places in the world. Repeated wars and an Israel-Egyptian blockade crushed the private sector. Yet the sprawling humanitarian operation that cared for 80% of 2.2 million Gazans relied on the private sector. If a charity needed flour, it rang up a trader in Gaza who called a mill in Israel or the West Bank. Basically saying that actually the Israeli, Egyptian, and West Bank private sectors were actually really important in getting aid into Gaza. And... The problem right now is that Israel is kind of expecting other places to do the aid. Like I was talking earlier, you had you had Kuwait giving generators, you have the UN getting aid there, you have Egyptian, the Red Crescent sometimes taking the good stuff and just sending over the expired stuff. Like this is in the hands of a lot of different actors right now. And you have Israel expecting the UN to oversee aid efforts. You also have Hamas expecting the same thing. And I would argue this is just not really realistic because right now Israel is in the driver's seat to be able to at least try to facilitate the flow of goods and maybe even directly get supplies in there. And there's a guy, Felipe Lazzarini, who is head of the UN Relief Works Agency, and he says aid alone will not be enough. He then says we need the private sector. And The Economist has a great piece, different from the one I was quoting earlier, And it writes here in quotes, the best way to supply Gaza would be through Israel, which is how around two-thirds of goods entered the enclave before October 7th. The article later writes, over 90% of those shipments were ordered by private firms. Just 4% were bound for aid agencies, which sorts most of their needs from Gazan businesses. And I was reading an interesting interview with an anonymous Israeli commander, and he even said the army is prepared to supply Gaza, but it needs to get the order. Basically, that means it needs to get the order from the Netanyahu coalition. And look, Blinken is on another trip in the Middle East as tensions are heating up quite quickly. I would have to assume that this is definitely on the list because it is just insane to see how quickly everyone is turning on this. And rightfully so, because people just don't like to see dying people. Dying people is usually not popular. (laughs) Just saying. And it's atrocious to see what's happening on the ground. And I think that's why the lopsided nature of this is what's pissing off even Western countries. You've seen even Germany and France kind of change their tones on this a little bit. Obviously, the Biden administration has changed a bit. It's because you see kind of a prosperous tech country like Israel next door to a country that's basically trapped and starving. And again, I think it was... George Bernard Shaw, if I'm right, who said never wrestle with a pig because you'll both get dirty and the pig likes it. Something something like that. And it's the idea that I think really works well in this case. It's like Hamas wanted October 7th to goat Israel into doing something stupid because then you know Hamas can win the propaganda war here. And so they dragged Israel into this. And unfortunately, Israel's kind of taken the bait. And Israel is now 
now losing world support in this. And I think I think it's understandable why. So we'll have to keep watching this. I'm really curious about how this South Africa genocide hearing goes. But there is just so much happening with this with this issue. And I mean, of course, none of it's good news whatsoever. But then I, you know, think about the debate we watched and I, I talked about last night. And then you have people like Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis who think we're not doing enough and we need to trust Israel on this. No, I think we need to pressure Israel and convince Israel's better angels because I, again, want Israel to exist, but the world's turning on it, and Israel is less safe because of the actions the Netanyahu government is doing right now. And I think it is right now the role of countries like the United States to convince Israel to get aid in there and work on at least some form of a ceasefire so some of the death and killing stops. That is, that is firmly where I stand on this. So anyways, not the happiest of episodes by any means. We'll be back soon. Thank you guys for listening. And as always, you can find me on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Podbean. You guys know the rest. Enjoy the rest of your day. Adios.